thought you lived in Florida. <laughs> hey, everybody, and welcome to the Better at Beach podcast. My name is Mark Burke. I'm here with my co-host, Brandon Joyner. And today, we have one of our star coaches from our Better at Beach camps. Uh, he beat me down in Pottstown a few years ago. I've still got his number on the beach. Uh, <laughs> we're not going to take too long to introduce him, but it's going to be a fun chat. Nolan Albright, what's up, brother? What's up, y'all? Excited to be here. <laughs> you should be. You should be. Uh, uh, he, he's also beaten me pretty bad on the on the grass as well, Mark. So we're we're in the same category. Okay, so we're still on the <laughs> recruiting trail. We're hoping that this episode uh, brings him <laughs> right, puts him on our side. I'm just looking for a pop sound partner. That's it. <laughs> Aren't we all? Aren't we all? <laughs> Uh, guys, I do, uh, before we get started, I do want to tell you, um, because all three of us should be there, uh, in April, I think it's Brandon, April 6th to 12th. Uh, yes. Uh, Nolan will not be there though. Unfortunately, he's got plans. Ooh. All right. Well, April 6th to 12th guys without Nolan, we are <laughs> running our our Better at Beach training camp in Florida again. So we just booked the dates at the Postcard Inn. It's going to be a six-day event. We've got a number of other events. If you click on the link below uh, this video, you will see all of them. And we'll give you a free drill book as well as a 5% discount on any of this just for attending our live streams and listening to our podcasts. So make sure you click on the link around this video. Uh, we've got a bunch of goodies there for you. And it will also show you everything that we have to offer in terms of our online programs, in-person training programs, and uh, new and improved tools for coaches. And tools for coaches is something that I really want to start to talk to Nolan about today because he's been an NCAA coach. Uh, he has been obviously an elite competitor in two-on-two volleyball on the beach and on the grass. Uh, he's got his AVP accolade, so he's got, I believe, a high of a ninth uh, in the AVP and, uh, you know, a pretty eclectic background in terms of just indoor grass beach, uh, moving from the South and now, or, and Chicago over to Florida. So we've got a whole lot to talk about with Nolan and I'm looking forward to it. So Nolan, do you like indoor beach or grass better and which is the best sport? Dude, I, uh, I fall asleep at night debating which of those three I like better. Um, <laughs> I don't know, man. I, I just love volleyball in general. I think uh, I'm probably the best at grass compared to indoor and beach. Uh, I'm the most frustrated by beach just because it's a tough sport to play. It's dominated by errors a lot. And then indoor, I love the team dynamic. I love the fact that it's six people on the court all rowing together plus your bench. Um, and I like how I don't know. As a coach, I love indoor the most, I think, um, because there's just more people to work on. Um, but I think in beach, the mindset of it is uh, is really fun to work with. So if I can just sort of stay in Sweden on that answer and just kind of be like, <laughs> I love volleyball, that's don't what I would say. Don't you mean Switzerland? Like getting, yeah, Switzerland. <laughs> hey, oh, well, yeah, I'm going to Sweden. Sweden, Sweden, on my Sweden hasn't today. been in too many wars either, so I think you're all right. No. <laughs> <laughs> One of the two. There I don't know. Go. Um, but yeah. Do you think that there's a, a different athlete for the different sport? Like, what do you need physically 
to play indoor versus beach? What do you need mentally um, to play indoor versus beach? Yeah, uh, good question. I think uh, on the beach side, um, it, it allows for a lot of variation. It really is just maximizing your abilities, your talents, your skills, your mindset. So you can have someone like me who's 6'5", pushing 220, um, who can compete on the beach pretty well. And then you have a guy like Hagen, who's, you know, he's not even six feet. Um, and he, I know he was the last, uh, the last guest here. Um, and then you have a guy like Logan Weber, the first guest who's six, nine, and you know, he's pushing a buck 70. Like, so I, I think on the beach, it's more about like maximizing yourself. Um, I think on indoor, there's a few more molds that you kind of have to fit. Like if you're an indoor hitter, you need to pack a lot of punch into the ball and it is, it is like necessary. There's really no way around it because, uh, with a triple block up with a full defense behind you, you just have to put 55 miles an hour on the ball to get a kill consistently. If you only do shots indoor, it's going to get picked up. Um, but I think on the beach, it allows for a little bit more variance. Um, you can be, you can win games from as be, like being a great passer, putting your, your partner up on two a lot. Um, you don't really need to have an arm. I've played with guys who are like, Hey man, my shoulder's hurting today. I'm, I, you know, I might just do a lot of poking Mark Fornicari. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, he's just going to pass me up for a two ball all day long and I can use my shoulder and swing. So I think, uh, beach can beach. You need ball control. That's a, that's a no brainer. Like you have to have ball control. Um, and I mm. think on indoor, you have to have physicality, um, to, to like the max as much, as much as you can get. So yeah, that's what I would say the difference of the athletes are. What about uh, head wise? You know, it's, have it's, you noticed any difference mentally between mm-hmm. what works or socially or emotionally for an indoor player versus yeah. uh, a beach player? Yeah. Uh, man. Indoor is like the ball will find you when you're not expecting it. Like, it will always find the weakest link. Beach, it's going to find you whether you're having the best day of your life or you're not. Like if you have a hot hand on the beach, that hot hand will take you all the way through and you're going to be able to get a lot of touches because they can't hit it away from you. There's only two on the court. I think indoor sometimes you can have an amazing game. You can hit a thousand. And if you're a middle and your team is passing bad, you only took five swings. You got five swings or five kills on five swings. You, you may have been ready to have 25 but you can't get the ball because your team's not passing well enough. So I think, um, I think the mindset of an indoor player is a little bit of like a high tide raises all ships. So I'm going to play at my peak and it may not be my time right now to have a rock star performance. Um, it may be my time right now to be more of, you know, the assister, or it may be my time right now to just hold a block over on my, if I'm the left side hitter, I'm just going to hold that middle and let my right side go off because all they've done is prep for me as the outside hitter. And so I can free up other hitters. I think on the outdoor side, you may not ever get a serve. Um, They may serve your partner the entire time, but you have to be locked in because it's happened to me so many times. It used to happen more where I wouldn't see a single serve until it was 18-18. And then the last five serves of the game would come to me. And as an indoor player, I'm like, wait, I, I didn't think I was really, I thought I was just going to be setting this whole game. And then the last five serves come to me and I'm in the setting mindset um, because it was, I was a little bit immature on the beach side. And so I think 
having a, mm-hmm. a more steel mindset on the beach and just like being able to be seven out of 10 chill while also being just sort of positively optimistic about like, I might get the serve, I might set, I might get a two ball. Um, yeah, I think that skill is a lot more necessary on the beach side, I would say. Mm. You know what? I, I One thing that I prided myself on in, I think, college and, and club was just getting people fired up, especially once I got into like adult nationals. Um, (laughs) you're out there late at night, you know, you might have nothing left, but the ability for one person to, to go in there and get six other people just fired up without providing any skill, any kills, any digs, any serves, but like the fact that you can actually turn a match around just like that, because even if you affect two of them, Right. Even if you only affect 30 percent of your team, those two can take over a match uh, so long as there's a half decent pass. Uh, And uh, it's tough because if you got your one guy in a rut on beach and no matter what, he refuses to to lift up with you and they get stuck there. And then you don't Mm -hmm. you can definitely have a negative effect, but the positive emotional effect from your group, I've always found that kind of lacking in beach, whereas I could not touch a ball and have an incredible uh, effect on on the game, on the outcome, and on the performance of my teammates just by, you know, punching a few people in the chest and <laughs> and letting it ride. <laughs> yeah, I, I would say the same thing. I mean, if you're, a, if you're a culture guy and you go and play two-on-two volleyball, you're going to have good culture and you're going to lose because like you can't just be a culture guy when you're playing doubles volleyball, because again, it will, it will find you. You have to be a skill guy. You have to be a physical guy. You have to be a tactical guy. Like there is no like supreme specialization. Phil Dahlhauser, amazing blocker, like phenomenal attacker. What do you have to do? Work on his hands. Became the AVP best setter of the year, like two or three times, something like that. Like, because nobody wanted to serve him the ball. So he could have had the best mentality ever with his partner and been like, hey, I'm going to get every block. You're going to get every dig. But at the end of the day, you have to side out to win a gold medal. Um, and so he you know, worked on his hands a lot and became not just a good culture guy. And, and Phil is so chill and smooth and just like fun to play with and be around. Um, but like he can't just get by on that and his size. Like he has to also develop those hands. And so I think – that's where it becomes like that well-rounded side. Indoor, I recruited culture guys. Like I recruited kids that I knew may not ever get into the starting lineup, but they wanted to play. Really? You oh, yeah. knew they would never, like you knew they would never start or that it would be like crazy hard for them. I, yeah, but you I, actively I, recruited them because you wanted them to, to build up the, the culture of your team. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And those guys always ended up hmm. finding their way onto the court whether it was a serving sub yeah. or whether it was, okay, we had our libero get hurt, our setter get got hurt, so we need to pull our backup libero to be the setter. Now there's an opening back here in the libero spot. We'll get you in that game because I knew they were locked in. The whole team trusted them, that kind of stuff. They like There were specifically two guys I know where they ended up having an intense impact on the success of our team because the season's just so long. If you have a bunch of negative Nancys out there, everyone's going to be upset, tired, worn out by April, you know, like the men's volleyball season is 
like January, sometimes December, all the way through May. And that is a long, long season. It is definitely a marathon, not a sprint. And so you do have to have those culture guys around. And I think that's why beach coaches, like it's really important to have a rah-rah guy as a beach coach. Because even though during the game, you're not going to be screaming and yelling, but throughout the traveling, throughout the prep, throughout everything, can, can like your coach provide that energy to you? to keep you going throughout your leagues, keep you going throughout the summer, like keep you motivated and like learning new things and, and hungry to learn new things. So um, yeah, I definitely, there was definitely a couple guys and I don't want to drop their name for the sake of, you know, potential embarrassing. <laughs> them, but if, if I was talking to them one-on-one, I think at this point in their life, you know, they've graduated. I think they would know that they were definitely behind the power curve of our team but they brought something to the table that was unique and something that there was like a piece of our whole puzzle that was a little missing. And I was like, I wanted to bring that kid in. Were, were there certain things that you would look at like at tournaments while you were recruiting that would like things that they would do that would speak to that characteristic? Yeah. uh, So for me, it was like, how are they on the bench culture? Like if they are on the bench, like, are they dancing, screaming, yelling, hanging out, having fun? Or are they looking over at their mom and dad? Like, why am I not playing? Like coach? Oh my gosh. Like, why is coach not playing? Like there's that. But then it's also in the personal interview. If a 17 year old kid in a zoom conversation can make me laugh and like, make me be like, dude, where did you come from? Like, that is so unique. Like your high school experience already has been so cool. I already know that that kid's bringing something, something to the table. That's like, wow, like that is very well-rounded. And um, it happened with a kid that wasn't from uh, the United States where I I Zoomed with him. And he was like, I want to bring this style of volleyball to the team. And I'm like, what style of volleyball is that? Like he he named his country. And then he said like, I want to bring this country style of volleyball. I was like, what does that mean? He was like, you know, (laughs) it's like a lot of fun. And it's like, we're, we're out there and we're, we're just like, we're having a good old time and like all this kind of, I don't want to do the accent cause I'll give away the country. <laughs> but, um, yeah. So I, I think that's kind of where, I, where I saw that was like, if in a one-on-one conversation, he's trying to impress me and he's able to be so lighthearted and just fun and charismatic. That's one less charismatic energy I have to supply towards the team. Like, He's already supplying that for me. So I can work more on the nitty gritty of the tactics or, you know, watching somebody else's technique and stuff. So I know it doesn't have much to do with, with, uh, you know, improving your beach game, but I guess just in my, my history, that was something that was cool. No, I mean, I think, I think that's so cool to hear. And like, I mean, for any junior that follows us or ours in, in, in the recruiting process, especially with how technological everything's gotten, it's like it's it's a good thing to know that charisma and personal conversations are so important. You know, yeah. that that alone can find you a spot on a team and can allow you the opportunity to work your way in. You know, I think it's kind of funny that um, you say that you I think Mark and I were kind of those kind of people. Like, I don't know if skill wise, we should have been given a chance to play. You thought you thought you were the skill guy. (laughs) I was like, I'm just please like, get me, get me a role on the bench for the first year. I'll, I'll get there. (laughs) You're like state player of the year. What's up? (laughs) I didn't realize how bad Virginia was at the time, I guess. Um, Yeah. I was a little surprised, but I do think that I had, I had a little personality and, and, um, 
So like when, when you say that, I think I was kind of a product of that. So mm. it's, it's cool to hear. I, I like you yeah. sharing that. Mm. It's, it's crazy because in beach, you know, you need 50% of your team. Like one guy is 50% of your team. One girl's 50% of your team. Um, it is always said that if somebody's negative, if somebody's sour, they'll bring down a lot of people there. You know, you need in life, you need seven compliments for one, uh, insult in order to make you feel like neutral. So if you get seven compliments on a certain skill or a certain attribute about yourself, um, one negative from somebody will wipe out all of those sevens. So you actually like need eight to be net positive. And if you have one or two negative guys like on a team, negative guys or girls, two or three, okay, maybe the rest of the guys can can overcome that in terms of yeah. being positive and in terms of being fired up. But if anyone on your team on the beach, if, if just one of you is having an off day, it's near impossible to get the team lifted again. And so it's interesting that you say that you think uh, beach coaches should be more rah-rah, should, should be able to like lift that culture and be buddy-buddy with them. Because more and more, you don't necessarily see elite tacticians or anything as coaches you see the coach that you know that they only hired because they love hanging out with them. You know, that's, that's happened. Like maybe Rich Lambern was that guy. Of course he was a national team libero. Um, but I think that Taylor Crabb and Jake Gibb and, and Casey Patterson just loved hanging out with him because he was fun and you could see it in their warmups, the way that they were just loose and he's always throwing a joke in there. Um, and it's even now with try and came, uh, I'm not saying that like Travis is not a, an elite tactician. He knows more about beach volleyball than 99.9% of players out there. Um, but I think that choice was made because we know each other. We're able to get along with like, we love each other instead of picking somebody out from another national team who'd already been to the Olympics. Uh, you know, they're picking somebody to take them to the Olympics who they know is going to ease tension <laughs> between them. Um, and create an environment that's kind of goofy and smiley. And, and Travis a hundred percent brings that along with the knowledge. Oh yeah. So. I mean, that's, that's an intangible that is like basically a tangible, like, can you soften a room? Like, I know we look at extremes of one end or the other, right? How do you feel at work or at school when you're paired up with a, a classmate or you're paired up with a worker who's just like, Oh man, our freaking boss gave us this assignment again. And like, dude, I've already done four of these. I have three other classes I'm working on. And you're like, Oh my gosh, man, we have 30 minutes to like discuss this. I don't really care about all, like I do. And as a good human, I'll like listen a little bit, but once it gets to that point where it's like, all right, we're wasting time and I, I have practice or I have other things to do. How much can you take of that negative energy before it just, you just kind of bail on them, right? So that's like the opposite extreme. Then the other extreme is like, they're so goofy that they don't care. And they're just, you know, everything's a joke. Mm. And, you know, all of it is just like fun. And we're going to go party after the matches are over. And like, I wasn't really watching the game because I was trying to flirt with this girl over here. Like there, there can be so many different ways of losing the focus. And then there can be that like over-focus of like, 
all these other things that are going on. And I think that good balancer in the middle is, is really important. And I think choosing a coach or choosing a program um, where you want to go play eventually, what does the culture of the team look like? Is it filled with a bunch of negative Nancys or is it filled with people who are just kind of normal humans that you feel like you could be a normal human around? Um, you know, for me, when I chose which college I wanted to go to, uh, I initially chose to play basketball in college because all of the volleyball schools that were recruiting me, um, you know, great coaches, great people. It was a good fit for other people. They just weren't a good fit for me. I was walking around campus and it was 10 degrees outside. Everybody's got their hood up. Everybody's got their headphones in. Um, the team would only really hang out at nights and on weekends to party with each other. And I was like, I don't feel that that hits me as a person very well. I think mm -hmm. that I enjoy hanging out with people at 10 a.m. in the morning also. And I don't feel as though I need to be drinking all the time to, to have fun with with my teammates. And I want to be able to go hiking with them if they like I want to be able to join theater. Like I wanted to do the more well-rounded experience of college and none of the volleyball schools I felt afforded me that opportunity. Um, and when I ended up going to school, I, I was so grateful that I had picked that and I'd had some good people. My family really helped me with that uh, of just knowing that there's a lot more outside of your sport. And I think as a beach coach, you can also remind your beach players of that. Like, Hey, I know your service Eve has been really sucking lately. And I know that like, you can't adjust to a float serve. You know, that was me for a few years here. It's like, serve me deep, serve me short. It was hard. I could pass the hardest serve out there, but the second you gave me a second to think, then I was kind of a little squirrely with it. Right. And having a coach at that time would have been really helpful to be like, hey, man, you are focusing on the 5% of the game that is your big struggle. And you're only losing by two points to some really good teams. Maybe like do one or two things here, but just make some sort of a mental adjustment to switch that out. And I, I had a I had somebody who it wasn't it was Aaron Lang. He's a grass volleyball player from Wisconsin. He's played some beach. I always played with my watch on because that's just what I did. And I was, I was like a little bit like, I don't know. It's like those sprinters that wear the jewelry. It was just like my thing, right? I was just like, I can be so good that I can even play with an Apple watch on. And big watch matter, guy. Right? Yeah. Big, you know, Steve Jobs. Look at that guy wearing a watch. Yeah. Um, and so he was like, I was like struggling with it. He was like, what if you just like take your watch off? Like make that little adjustment, like a little physical adjustment. And it's, or it's a physical manifestation of a mental reality, right? It's like a physical switch. You just like, you don't need to wear the watch. Like that doesn't represent you. You're an all around volleyball player. Why are you being so, um, I can't even think of the word. Why are you being so superstitious about wearing that watch or whatever? And I was just like, oh, yeah, you're right. That's dumb. And I took it off. I ended up passing so much better, right? Cause I just felt like, okay, now I'm like, in that playing zone and I don't have to like change my whole technique about passing. I just needed to make a small little switch. So um, Lang is an amazing balancer too. He was our fourth at the Wapaka boat ride, which we won this year. And on the sideline of the, the whole tournament, he kept on feeding. He was like, you're big dogs. You guys are big dogs. Like the whole <laughs> time. It's like, and we were big dogs. We were the biggest freaking dogs out there, but he kept on reminding us right. like, don't let the small stuff get you down. You guys are big dogs. And like, that was our whole mantra for the whole tournament. We ended up winning, which was cool. But um, yeah, I think that's just kind of where that, that uh, prudence of a coach, prudence of knowing when your team needs to get fired up, knowing when they need to maybe slow down, 
uh, knowing when they may need to just make a small little switch, like taking the watch off. So, yeah. Yeah. I think knowing as a, knowing as a, as a coach who you are as well as your players, you know, like I, I know about myself that I can do very dry drilled work mode, like head down the entire time and just go without necessarily talking without lifting up people around me. And so that's the, the personal mode that I get into and that I can be comfortable working there. But then somebody next to me, they're probably going to get bored. You know what I mean? It's just like, Hey, at some point I need a, a joke or some communication from you or some ease. Like it, it can't be this constant, constant grind mode all the time, which is like one of the modes that I pride myself on. But I realize that it becomes over time, a huge turnoff to anybody working alongside me. So I know that as a head coach, the first person that I would recruit, whether it would be uh, for beach or for indoor would be somebody who is a, a true jokester. Like <laughs> we'll always throw in funny comments, always yapping um, and, and keeping things light. And that would balance me out. And I had a couple of those when I was like coaching high schools. And when I was coaching some juniors clubs, I was like, I just got to find somebody who will, you know, um, bring presents for the girls or like tie bows in their hair because that's what they enjoy doing. You know, (laughs) (laughs) if, cause if they're with me the entire time, they're not going to have fun. Uh, they will, they'll get good coaching, but they got to have fun and enjoy the process. And so I I know that about myself. I try to go into that side and, and tap into it a little bit, but, I, I would need that assistant, that person next to me, so that everybody's not all serious grind work the entire time. That could be exhausting. Yeah, yeah. I uh, I ended up I hired a volunteer assistant coach. Um, he was he was a, a missionary on the school, so his role entirely. The reason why he was at Bellman Abbey was to assist people, um, assist the student athletes with their daily life, uh, especially mm-hmm. with their walk um, as a Christian and. We were a Christian school, um, so you know it kind of went in line with that. But one of the reasons he played baseball in college, he knew literally nothing about volleyball. But I oh, wanted he went him- from baseball to volleyball. That's a new direction. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, so that's that was uh, a interesting hire, and he ended up using that. We we ended up uh, knowing that we needed to have a little bit more vulnerability with our team. And the thing that he shared, the thing he was vulnerable was about, he's like, I show up to the gym every day and I have no idea what's going on. He's like, (laughs) I know the goal is to hit the ball in the other court and not let it hit our court. But he's like, I'm trying to be this role of coach to you guys. And I struggle with just the basics of the game. And he would be the first person screaming and yelling. And then the ref would say like, double and he would still be screaming and yelling for our team oh man what are those oh bubbles? look at you what <laughs> just happened <laughs> dude that was a great performance and wave your hand what how did that come are you up? on your phone <laughs> no i'm on my uh i'm on my laptop wow anyway balloons for uh days. balloons for bryson um yeah. <laughs> <laughs> bryson he showed up and he was like, I'm, I'm here every day. And what I can contribute, I will, which is I will be here every single day. I will be somebody that you can turn to if you need a little pump up speech. He played D1 baseball. He knows what it is to grind. You know, it's a similar, similar length of a season for baseball as well as volleyball. 
And he was like, so in spite of my shortcomings, I want to provide this fun, like just great experience and be someone that you can lean on if you need just like a, a mentorship or something like that. And I, I firmly believe he was one of the big reasons why we won the conference that year is just because we had, you know, I'm, I get, can get stuck in the tactics or get stuck in like, Oh, where's our team mindset or like the scouting of the other team. And, you know, my assistant coach, who's another Virginia kid, uh, Derek, who's now the head coach at the Abbey. Um, you know, he would get, he would get caught up a lot in, I had him do our, like a scout of our team all the time. So he would actually break down the things we were doing as if he was the other team's coach. Um, he would also break down the other team and present the scout all the time. He was also big into recruiting. And so we're all up in this headspace of like, how do we get better at volleyball? And Bryson's like, I don't know how we get better at volleyball, but I know that we're not going to get better if we're not comfortable. And if we're not bringing our full self onto the court. And I think mm -hmm. that that might be the one through line that is the most important for a beach indoor grass player is like, you have to bring 100% of yourself onto the court. And if you have uh, bad relationships going on, if you have poor sleep going on, if you have anything that takes away from bringing 100% of Nolan onto the volleyball court, I will be less of a player because volleyball is super social. You're constantly communicating. It's super physical. You're constantly moving and then you got to move again and then you got to move again. And then it's also super tactical. You got to figure out where the other team is, what your side is doing well. And if your brain is like only 90% there and your body's only 90% there, that is a big difference from being 100% onto the court and being able to just like fully flow. So, I mean, that goes back again to sort of that like, that culture person on, on the squad and, and, you know, um, I guess talking about like what, what a culture person can contribute. But um, yeah, I just, I've had so many examples of that. Like uh, John Wooden said that you can do so much more to hurt your team in the 22 hours outside of practice than you can ever do to help your team in the two hours inside of practice. Um, that was his mentality at UCLA. Like I can do amazing things for this portion of the day. But if this portion of the day is no good, it doesn't matter what I do in this two hours because you're a full person. Like it's not just about your training. It's not just about the time you're strapping on your shoes for, for an indoor or whatever. So um, I, I really took that to heart. And I mean, he's one of the best coaches of all time. So when I was coaching, I tried to, to mirror and, and do a lot of the things that he did. So, yeah, that's just one way to go about it, I guess. Were there any other coaching books uh, or people that you followed or still follow in terms of figuring out how to be a good coach, how to be a good leader, people that you emulate or people that if they came out with 20 books, you'd read every one. Yeah. Uh, Mike Krzyzewski, um, the way that he, you know, the, the former Duke coach, um, the way that he developed his program and kind of rose up and he got a chance, I believe he worked under Bobby Knight uh, first I believe he worked with him or at least was coached by him. And he mm -hmm. took a lot of Bobby Knight stuff. But the way he developed his program and included his whole family into the program, like he preached family, he, he preached the fist and each one of the fingers of the fist represented a principle. And if you combined all the principles together, it could be like it could pack a lot of force. Right. Um, I can't remember exactly what all of them are, but I know one of them is family. Um, and so every recruiting trip he had, he would introduce the recruit to his mom or sorry, to his wife. Oh, I'm getting a phone call. 
That's uh, actually the uh, my former assistant, current head coach, Derek Sullivan, calling me. Um, Look at that. I should see if he wants to join the podcast. Um, Derek's a rich but, uh, guy. <laughs> yeah, so he would incorporate his family into it and be like, look, I'm influenced majorly by my family all the time. That's who you spend the majority of your time around. And these kids that I'm bringing in, I want them to be able to feel comfortable in the life that I'm living, in the program that I'm incorporating. Um, so I think that was something that was valuable too. It's like whatever Coach K is doing in his personal life, it doesn't just stop when he's like wearing the whistle as the coach. It doesn't just stop when it's game day. Like that stuff keeps being involved with with you as a coach, with you as a person. So um, yeah, he wrote a book. I, again, I can't really remember it, but uh, I read that book. And then he also, just his like interviews, the way he would address the the media. Um, whenever I had like some sort of interview coming up or anything like that, I would just watch like a five minute clip of like Coach K talking about his team and just see what things he was emphasizing to the media. Mm. Because how you address the media is not how you address your team and how you address like the papers is not how you are coaching your team. It is like a it is like a small scale, like really cool PR way of saying everything's okay. You should still donate money to my program. Like <laughs> come buy tickets, right? It's like, it's not really what's fully going on. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I, I've tried to mirror a lot of what I did after him. Um, maybe yeah. even including this little, this little swoop up here. Cause I know he had that for a while. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. And I like that because, you know, I've, I've always kind of been the same way. If, with your relationship with your family, it's to, to the outside world you can't break us no matter what, like we're going to fight internally. We're going to figure out our stuff internally. Um, but to everybody else, I don't, I don't need you knowing any problems that I have. I don't need to, especially when there's media and social media and everybody's ability to then like come and pick it apart. Like social media is like sharks in a water. If they smell blood, they'll just go and attack and then it's so easy to just fall into that you know one one errant comment from some troll could like eat at you for weeks and then especially if you have you know a young person or somebody who doesn't have the ability to say f that like i don't care um that takes a long time to build up that kind of i don't know shield or 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 shell uh and it will still have an effect because then you have to actually spend a little bit of energy to say F that, <laughs> you know, like it still eats a little bit, but then you just get better at, at ignoring it. And yeah. if you expose all of those problems, number one, you look like a, a whiner all the time. Number two, how much can somebody trust you if everything that they tell you somehow gets out everywhere? then that person won't ever be vulnerable to you. It's okay to be vulnerable to people within your circle, but to the entire world, no, I don't believe in that. And, you know, you can send me to, to a psychologist and th that's fine. <laughs> I'll do it, but like, I'll, I'll be vulnerable with the people in my circle, but to expose my everything to everybody in the entire world and social media when it's so easy to attack everybody now, uh-uh, you know? We're always good. <laughs> yeah. I, I, something I would not. tell my guys and something I believe in too, as I'm playing a lot is like, who deserves my energy? Like you only have a limited amount. And if you are directing all of your energy towards the fans, towards the ref, towards 
somebody that beat you two rounds ago that talks smack and that game's over, but you're still directing energy towards them. They do have a little bit of control over you in that because your mindset is a little bit locked in on them as opposed to what your next job is. And whenever I would pull the team in and if any of my former guys are watching, like they would know, I would say these 20 guys, myself, my assistant, Bryson, the athletic trainer, our strength coach, and all of you guys are the only ones that have an effect on whether we score points or not. Like you guys here are the ones that we need to direct our energy towards. It's a little bench energy coming towards the court, little court energy coming back towards the coaches. It's little coaches giving some feedback and advice. Athletic trainer being like, hey, dude, he's good to go. You know, I wrapped up his ankle. He's fine. Get him back in the game. Like those are the only people that really should like deserve your energy when you're performing because you only have a little bit that you can give off socially to, to where it actually starts helping. And it, you know, a little energy from them ends up combining to, to then get you here, to then get you here. If you start dissipating that energy to various places like the ref or even the other team, sometimes it's, it can become, you know, the snake that bites its own tail. You just get in this bad feedback loop where you're just constantly trying to like, you're just constantly trying to like overpower the other person or other team, as opposed to just powering up yourself and your own teammates and your own culture. So um, yeah. That, and uh, again, that's another mindset thing, but I, I don't know, I guess I'm feeling that today. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The, it's interesting. The people who, who need to be in fight mode to perform, they shouldn't need the other team to pick a fight with them. It should be kind of Michael Jordan esque, you know, they will always pick a fight. You know, they'll get themselves riled up. But if you feel yourself getting a little bit more intense because the other team's getting more intense, then you're absolutely right. They are psychologically controlling you. And if the other team's actions, if the other team's crowd, the other team's parents has the ability to change your mentality, it's true. They, They have actual power over you and uh, you're choosing to give that up and you can you can train not to you have to train if you want to be excellent not to Um, and you should also know what environments or what mentality you put yourself in to be ultimately successful do you need to be in fight mode to be successful do you need to be calm do you need to be like high and energetic or jokey this is the stuff that we go through uh, with our players in, in our online program and in camps it's What version of you emotionally and socially is the best? Okay, how do you put yourself there? But if you're allowing another team, another coach, fans to put you in a certain a certain mental state, yeah, you don't have power over yourself, and that's a sucky place to be. Yeah, what like as for you two as players? Like, I know I've competed against you guys, and with the experience that you guys had on the beach, I I played you when I was kind of fresh to playing beach volleyball uh, a couple times. Then I played you later on earlier on, there was a little bit more chippiness or like, just like you like digging in and like seeing like, okay, can this guy handle if I give him a little bit of like chatter, can this guy handle if, you know, as the experienced guys who, who played in main draws, can this guy handle some of this, like just banter, just good. I mean, none of it was dirty or any, it wasn't personal. You didn't know who I was to then later on 
I remember, I think, Burek, I played you in Virginia Beach or Atlantic City. And it was mm. a really good. It was like a three-set match. Um, you ended up taking it. But you gave me nothing. You did not chatter. You did not chip at me at all. You <laughs> were playing with Shane Donahue. And I think Shane chipped me a little bit, but like you did not, because I think at that point it was, it was kind of established that like I could, I could handle that and sort of give it back and it would fuel Mm -hmm. me. How do you guys like navigate through that as being a bit more experienced, like beach players, like knowing when to chirp and when to sort of not? You can always, I'm completely a hundred percent down with the sight game, like the mental game. If it takes me a couple of words to throw you off of everything you do, I don't consider that unsportsmanlike. I consider it unsportsmanlike when you start like cursing at somebody, you know, like when it comes down to family and stuff like that, when you see it on, on UFC, that's not the stuff that I think belongs um, in volleyball. But, you know, if it just takes me saying you suck, for <laughs> you to, to lose your mind, you know, fine. That's, that's easy. That's your weakness. And whether you like it or not, and I've said this a few other times, whether you like it or not in terms of like sportsmanlike conduct and whether it's right, it will 1000% always exist. And you have the choice to scream and say, it's not right. It's wrong. Or learn how to defend yourself verbally, mentally, emotionally. You know, whether it's a block or whether it's a comeback, that's up to you. But you can't just continue to complain to the world and say, oh, well, they're nasty players and they shouldn't be able to do that. Okay, complain, but at the same time, put on your Kevlar chest plate and go out and do battle. <laughs> it doesn't make sense to just sit there and, and try to fight against a world of people who will yap and who will dig into you um, and then continue to be a victim. Instead, just be ready for it. So whether you like it or not, you have to be prepared for it. Um, And if it's easy enough for me to say a couple of things and you get all excited or I say something a little bit, you know, a secret to my partner that's loud enough for you to hear it, you know, and and I notice that that's a trigger. Here we go. Great. I I don't want to cramp at the end of the day. I'd rather have an easy match. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. yeah, I think I think it's kind of interesting because I think throughout my career I've gone through all the different phases. You know, like I was an indoor, and then when I was just getting out to the beach game, I was that like chippy, fiery, probably taking it a little too far sometimes hmm. um, with uh, like talking trash or communicating with the other team. Um, and then as I've gotten older, it's like. I don't know. Maybe I'm just tired. <laughs> it's like <laughs> expending that extra energy. Just I, sometimes I'm like, is this worth it? Um, but I do think that like that's something I've I've been thinking about like last year and this year um, because the guy I've, I played with a lot recently is a guy named Alex Diaz who is he can get a little fiery and when I feed off that energy and I kind of like have his back and start to get a little fiery myself, then I can feel that like old Brandon coming out. And, but there's also times where I'm like, okay, the competitive nature that I have in that I love, but I also, I I think as I'm getting older, I really do appreciate the respect for the game, Mm -hmm. you know? And I, and I think it's just like finding a balance of 
finding that fierce competitive nature while also respecting the game and even respecting the opponents. You know, I don't think any person that I've played against has really at the end, maybe a couple, but at the end of it has been like, oh, Brandon doesn't like me. Um, mm. But I do think that, especially with Better at Beach becoming something big, like I think I do think about being a positive influence on people and and trying to make the way I play and handle situations something that like I would want my kids to do. Mm, um or whenever that happens if that happens but um like kids i coach whatever um yeah so it's like i think it's funny because i think i i I battle that every year um but i think it's i think it's like a natural process that a lot of players go through yeah yeah and it's it it is strange because we're we're also both brand guys now you know so we can't show up to a sand volleyball court and not have at least one person recognize us. Um, so there is some part in your head that's like, okay, but also all your maybe potential clients or customers are watching, but okay, you should win because these are also your potential clients, customers. Okay. Are they going to think you're a jerk on the court? How much is this affecting your life? So <laughs> that stuff just plays in and you gotta, you gotta block it out and compete how you used, right. how you used to. Uh, I will say that, I was for sure playing my best volleyball when I was putting targets on people's backs when I didn't know where my next 50 bucks or next month's rent was coming from because all I cared about was volleyball. You know, four to eight hours a day of playing, lifting, film, that was it. That was my everything. Over time, it got to... I kind of need to build some type of future. I kind of, you know, I'm a little bit too smart to be like a beach bum scumbag, like just not (laughs) able to, to buy my own dinner with my brothers because they chose one of the, you know, uh, $4 sign, uh, restaurants. (laughs) Like it it got embarrassing for me, uh, growing up and then being, you know, in my early thirties and being like, Okay, yeah, you're pro, which means that you might make thirty five hundred to four thousand three times a year, <laughs> and then if you win Pottstown, you get a nice ten yeah. fat ten grand, right? But that's not really building. So I, I became obsessed. I think looking back with building myself more as a person, building a brand, a company, and then I lost that like all out anger chip on my shoulder deciding to hunt somebody down until I beat them by watching every bit of their film until I know how to beat them and I did it one by one with the guys who were above me like I started beating one and then the other and then like Billy Allen and then John Mayer um it wasn't consistent but when I finally knocked off each one to to get a victory against them you know it was like okay now I'm at that level Uh, but I stopped concerning myself with that because it wasn't paying rent so um it turned into something different for me and then uh yeah a lot of coaching energy and business building energy instead of a hundred percent volleyball energy it's why would i recommend young guys find a way to bring in income find a way to bring in the audience yes because if you go through a 10-year beach volleyball career and you haven't had a decent side gig to give yourself money and you don't end that beach volleyball career with a fan base of people who love you, 
you really have nothing left other than like good memories to, to build yourself forward, right? Like fan base, cool. You could sell to them anything you want probably for like the rest of your life because they love you. They knew you when you've got great social connections and you can monetize a giant network. Um, but at the same time, I would tell everybody like, forget about everything live on couches, like find a way to do it. Because number one, it's awesome memories. We, we have memories that none of my friends have, right? Well, actually all my friends are volleyball guys, but yeah. none of my friends that I went <laughs> to high school with have. <laughs> They're all in the memories. <laughs> yeah. Um, and everything else is a distraction. Yeah. It, it 100% is. So if you're not willing to, to be like a, a Logan Weber who is just chucking all of his time into film, and studying the best players, then there's going to be limitations. And other sports have the ability where you can be 100% at a certain level. We have the ability, if you're like top three, um, top three to four teams in the United States, right? Then you have the ability to be 100%. uh, And then if you're incredibly smart or you've got great sponsors or you've got somebody who's helping you out with marketing you and being an agent for you, then bringing in sort of that side income. And USA Volleyball is helping because they've got the monthly stipends and they're paying for the gym memberships for some people. Um, That does make it easier. And to be the best, you, you, (laughs) there's no doubt that you've got to throw everything you have into it. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's something that I've been, you know, figuring out is I think going along with what you guys said, when I was still coaching at Belmont Abbey, the, the thing I was, I wasn't afraid of, but I was watching out for was somebody just snagging a 10 second clip of me being an absolute idiot. And then just like posting it and saying like, is this the kid, is this the kid that you want to go play for? Like, Hey, recruits, like, this is the coach. And I was a kid at the time. I was like 24 when I was the head coach. Is this the kid that like, would your parents, are you going to send your kid to play for this guy who's screaming and yelling and being an idiot out there? Or do you want to play for the guy that has the fire, but directs it appropriately? Because no one wants to be with someone who is just and does nothing and who has no fight. Like that is not something that we look up to. That's just lethargy and, you know, just it's kind of pathetic right so you do want to be with someone who's like fiery but they should have like that understanding of what arena is the appropriate one to fight in um and in between points there can be a little bit of that chatter and all that stuff but like are we working like fully on that like fight that's during the game and screaming and yelling as you're taking a big swing and then afterwards, you don't really need to stare him down because the ball bouncing up the sand and, you know, hitting a pocket, going 20 feet in the air, that's all the stare down that you need. Like mm. that ball booming off their chest as you serve it at them, that's the only stare down. I Like the ball left a mark. I don't need to leave any more mark. Like they know that the next ball is going <laughs> right back at them in the same exact way. Um, but yeah, that that full life commitment, it, it is tough in the beach volleyball world where it is now with um, – sort of the lack of a consistent streaming uh, platform so that, you know, with sponsors, you can say, Hey, we're getting this, you know, X amount of people watching our matches when we play. Um, and, and that's the amount of eyeballs and each eyeball is worth a, you know, a dollar amount kind of a thing mm-hmm. to where if it's hard for people to even watch the AVP and even find out where it is, 
becomes a pretty big struggle to actually like sell anything really. Um, unless you do have that like personal, intimate, like social media following or something in, in that effect. So um, yeah, public image is definitely something that that's important and, and that will last way longer than our bodies will last out there on the beach. So um, yeah. I think, I think us three do, I, I would say of all the people who do like care about how they are viewed, but also play with a lot of passion. I feel like we do a pretty good job. Um, I don't know if I'm like just patting us on the back here, but like, yeah. I think for, for anybody that's watching um, and wants to watch clips or highlights or whatever and see like a good way to like play with some fire and passion and still not look like an idiot. Um, I think you could watch any three of our like clips and, and kind of get some advice on how to do that or just kind of get some tips and tools and stuff. Yeah. There's, there's fight, there's passion. And then there's douchebaggery. <laughs> you know, like at, at some point it becomes too much, too over the top. Uh, you can be passionate. And I think that's why giant brands also wait for a certain type of person to attach themselves to somebody who can be incredible in, in the moment that they need to be incredible athletically can win championships, but also that everybody in the country are going to like would let into their living room. You know, that's, that's when you get like the Nike picks for, you know, Tiger Woods and, and Michael Jordan. It was the vision of them was not that they were you know, outright lunatics, right? Like Nike. I don't know if they ever got behind Dennis Rodman. Um, I don't know if they ever got behind Allen Iverson, who that's like a totally different story. He got a, a bad rap a couple times, but uh, you're, you want to attach that brand to that special, special, special person who people love and can excel in that moment. And if you're a brand guy, or if you're looking for companies to, to find you, that's something that I don't know if, if you should be aware of it. Might just be luck of the draw, might just be who you are, how people perceive you, you know, and there are guys that are very good at being evil <laughs> and they have their persona and they still get brands. Will they ever get like a, a Nike? Maybe not because you're looking for every household in America, you know, and so they've, they've got to take their largest percentage, but you still have to know who you are and and not care after that you got to yeah. bring that that personality that you have yourself in full like you were saying yeah. yeah yeah hey what do you think about uh doubles oh i was gonna this is i was gonna ask you too yeah ncaa indoor head coach um brandon you're also ncaa indoor coach so now we've got the women who doubles don't count anymore Good, bad, ruining the game. <laughs> that, that would be like a great like TikTok clip right there. Like good, bad. Editors, tick tick. Hang on, coming. I got the software. Mark the clip. Editors, nice, great. Well, I ruined it by saying that, but um, no, no, no. That'll be cut out. But yeah, um, we do it in post. I would say, yeah, I would say it is a change that's already happened on the men's side. Um, in college men's, I have not seen a double called in about three years. 
Um, Athletic. I mean, yeah, it's like <laughs> officially not official. Like they don't really call doubles um, and they haven't been. So people are like, well, why are they doing it on the women's side but not the men's? Well, it's just like, that's just been how it's been called lately because they know that the dominoes have been falling in this direction. Mm. Um, I think, man, I mean, it's not a big difference at all for in-system passing. So like if you're passing three, which is, you know, that means you have three options to set. Um, You can set your outside, middle, right side, or even, you know, back row. That's like a three pass. It, it is not a big deal because it is better to have a clean ball out of the hands to find that hitter. And if it is a double, it probably will throw off the tempo a little bit. It'll probably throw off the location. And depending on which way the ball is spinning, like if you can send it with a hitter spin so that the ball is spinning towards the net as you set it, I always like to hit that ball. I loved when my liberos with their platform would launch that ball up a little bit and send it to the outside with that top spin so I could just really spin. easily get on top. Um, so I don't know if, if setters can figure out a way to sort of like double it and add that, that <laughs> am I hitting? Yeah. <laughs> Joyner can do it. We'll work on it. I think I did that. I did that naturally anyway. Yeah, you're good <laughs> at it. Yeah, you're good. I missed out on this role. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I think it will out a system. You'll see a big difference. Um, I already know now, like if the pass is, let's say the pass is 20 feet off the net and the ball is on the right sideline. There's almost no one that's willing to take that ball unless you're incredibly strong and willing to take that ball with their hands, especially on the Mm. women's side, and send it across the court because it's a really challenging ball to not double, to add all that pace as if it's a high pass, all that kind of stuff. So a lot of setters will just, you know, default to setting the BIC, that, that middle back, um, and then you have a triple block if they're a really big hitter oh. because they know. So it might make hit. more spectacular plays. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Very much so. Um, mm. And I think it'll cause the setters to take more risks. Um, what it will also do eventually in the long run is make setters more physical. Um, you know, these bad boys are going to be a lot more useful um, <laughs> as a setter because you're going to be able to chuck the ball from wherever the heck you are, backwards or forwards. If it's tight to the net, you can still go up and just kind of like launch it without fear. We used to have to mm. practice one hand setting. Now there, I mean, there's still kind of a use for it, but if that pass is low and tight to the net, if you can just get both hands on the ball, I mean, you can set it back like this. You can do whatever you want with that ball as long as you're not catching it and throwing it. Yeah. Um, I, I remember coaching against a team. It was a team we beat in the conference championship and their setter they had already kind of stopped calling doubles mostly. Um, But their offense, they had amazing middles and they had one really good stud outside. And so whenever that stud outside was in the front row, they would pass the ball really tight and he would go up tight to the net and heaven forbid he's front row because he could just take the ball and dump it, but they would pass the ball tight and he would basically either set that, that quick to the middle here or push the ball all the way out or dump the ball and they weren't calling any doubles and the ball was not coming out clean. And I'm like, I cannot set up my blockers to defend this well enough. Like it is very, very difficult to block not only the setter, but then two hitters that are 20 feet away from each other. And I'm expecting my middle to get out there and close. Um, So I think the, the setters will get a little bit taller, maybe a little bit more physical in the long run. Um, Blockers will probably get 
shorter if if this does have a big effect um, because they'll need to be faster laterally. Um, so we mm. might go back to sort of the middles huh. of old where they weren't necessarily the tallest player, but they were fast laterally to get back yeah. and forth. We've kind of now the middle the middle height has gone up. Um, Has it gone back up? I mean, there was a short period there where middles where they started saying like, no, like our our six six middles are just too slow, um, or six nine middles on the guy side were too slow, and it's not that taller people are slower; it's just that much more rare to find somebody who has incredible speed because a six nine person is a lot more rare than a six three person. So six three, you've got to be supreme athletic. 6'9", you could be a middle-of-the-pack 6'9", and still have that spot on the team um, because you're not the extreme athletic specimen, but you've got the height. So yeah. I don't – I don't. the whole, like, tall people are slow is garbage. All people are slow. There's just the 1% <laughs> that is, you know, at each, at each height that is actually really fast, really athletic, and can do things. So finding a seven-footer who is also crazy agile and fast side-to-side – it's just now now you're trying to find 1% of a height. They're in the NBA already. They're in the NBA already. Yeah. Making they're not playing they're volleyball. Not playing like Wembley, <laughs> right? Like this yeah. guy? Is that his name, Wembley? Yeah. The, the guy, guy who's just posterizing seven-footers? Like, yeah. I mean, there, there is some truth to if you have a taller middle and let's say they jump with the middle and they get fooled. If they're already 6'9", they only have to do this little commit move and they're already mm-hmm. back on the ground and then they yeah. can make a move to get out. If you're 6'2 or 6'3 as a middle, in order to mm-hmm. get up off the ground to stop the, the quick, you're in the air not only on the way up but on the way down way too long to be able to land, recover, and then get out and block the pin. So like, yep. there is that advantage of the tall middle to where it's like your time off the ground only needs to be this much for you to still prevent the bounce and get Especially outside. Especially with picks. Like yeah, the, the back row big balls, like that's such a huge thing right. to have somebody there who's on their toes or on their flat foot and still have six inches of their hands above the net. That's yeah, yeah. So that that's what I would say is is all of that. But I don't know, Joiner. What what do you think about it? Do you uh, think Joiner that that the thing that they say where oh well, if they doubled it, it's probably not going to be accurate anyway. I've always thought that was the most bogus thing to say, and it's just like. No, that that like doubling or not doubling doesn't have the, the any effect on accuracy. It's just how you touch the ball and, and and how you send it. I've always thought that was bogus. But do you think that if somebody doubles, it's going to hurt them anyway because they'll be less accurate? I've always thought that was bogus. Not really. I I don't. I don't know. I think it's tough. I I personally think I like I I was a setter. I I set at what I consider to be a pretty high level. And I would say the worst thing about my game was actually my hands. Like I was the person that was probably doubling the ball more than setting clean. Um, I was just good at deciding who to set. And I think my accuracy was still okay. Um, Roy Ball was perfect and never set a ball without spin. Like one of our elite, our country's elite setters was, was always setting spinny balls. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I think like, I don't really think it's going to change the, like, like you were saying, Nolan, the end system game. I don't think it's going to, we're going to see these weird things where setters are starting to put set spin on the ball. And I think we probably will see some like 
pretty daring setters that are like starting to go up for options. And then instead of optioning, like throwing the ball around, um, oh. I think that that's something we'll start to see, even if it's starting to happen from like the back row where and it, uh, something happens where they're trying to get a little creative. I think that that allows for that. And I think it's fun. I think that's how we like evolve the game. Um, two situations where I think it's definitely, we're going to see a lot of change is I'm thinking about like transition balls where the ball is like touching the ceiling in some of these really high gyms, but it's a good location dig. And as a setter, you're just like underneath it, waiting for the ball to come down. And you're just like, Oh, like those were really some of the only times in games where I would be like really stressed about the set, you know? But now it's like, if I can just grab it and throw it to a new location, I think that that relieves that a lot. Um, and then the other part is like middles. Yep. Everybody holding middle, their breath dude, when I middles think, about to say. <laughs> dude, I can think of like so many situations in college where, and I'm not going to shout anybody out. You know who you are. But <laughs> anytime somebody dug a ball to a middle, we would almost start laughing before the setter even set the ball or before the middle even set. And so, like, I'm a little sad that we're gonna we're not gonna see that anymore. Um, <laughs> but at the same time, I think it, it's I think it's gonna be interesting to see. I just I hope that there is some creativity with it. You know, like if it's just normal volleyball, but we're not being we're not calling the clean touches, then that doesn't really. I don't think the rule change really did what it's supposed to do. Mm. Um, but if these setters start taking some risks and start spreading the court on sets that they normally wouldn't. Um, I think, I think it could be cool. Definitely see some like more like maybe some sports center top 10 type plays type sets. Um, I think there's also, I think if you're working on just like the forward and back axis, it doesn't like that is pretty easy for a lot of setters to get that clean ball. But when you start adding the back row access where you're going directly, like sort of backwards to the right side back row or to the BIC, instead of hitting the middle, you just like flick it over to the, that's pretty challenging mm-hmm. to do with your hands and good setters can be here, show middle, show middle, take the ball in and then flick it to the back row or flick it back to the right side back row. And to do that without spin as the ball's coming in this direction and then to kick it right back out the, the other direction without spin, it's pretty challenging to do. That's probably the most doubles that I ever see is like not working on the forward and the back, but working on the ball coming in and then adding some side to that set, you know, setting the 10 mm. foot line area. Mm. And that will be never called. And right sides, you know, normally that right side back row tempo. If you're trying to go fast into that ball, you can literally chunk it back there and big old right side is going to be able to take some good swings on it. So I think the tempo might get faster for the men's game even. I mean, it is already blistering fast. Uh, mm-hmm. And if they allow for this to happen, it'll get even faster. Uh, I think the women's game might get faster. You're still kind of limited by the, the physicality of just how high above the net they get when they contact the ball at the NCAA. Um, you know, the average women's, you know, big 10 outside hitters probably contacting the ball around like 10, three to 10, five, um, yeah. you know, if they're a physical player and the net is seven, four, seven, four. Yeah. so it's three feet, three feet higher than the net on the men's side. A lot of the 
big outside hitters in college are contacting the ball like 11-3, 11-5. And the net is eight feet. So now you're looking at three and a half feet or three, three feet, five inches of like clearance over the net. That's a lot of words, a lot of math there for us here. Um, but <laughs> there's just some, some more variance that you can have um, and you can go quicker on the men's side than you can on the women's. So I, I don't know how fast it'll get, but it'll be interesting to see. I don't hate it. I don't mm-hmm. like that we're trying to take judgment out of the mind or out of the refs. Um, I personally think that college refs do a pretty good job um, I think at the junior level, it can be a challenge um, to find enough refs that that know the rule consistently. That's um, for sure so where it's going to make it way nicer. That yeah. will help. When, like when if they, the first place that they should have done this is is the junior level. Yeah, it, mm-hmm. this is what we always say at our camps. Like no one at our camps is allowed to call doubles. I and I, yeah. I firmly believe that until double A uh, on the beach, you should not be allowed to call doubles. Like we're we have generations of players who just don't even try to handset because they're so afraid to lose points. And people say like, oh, you know, just don't do it. Just don't do it. And then somebody's played volleyball for 15 years and they've never handset in a match because of it. And it's like, what a, a sin to our entire <laughs> volleyball community that, that we've created a situation like this. And I, I think it's trash. Right. And I understand that it's a rite of passage for you to finally learn how to set, but you've left out all the people that aren't willing to lose those points. And now they don't have that skill set. And now the entire, you know, country, the evolution of volleyball can't accelerate. And yeah. that's, it's always bugged me. I think that a, if you're a tournament director, you give, do me a favor, try it for one season a tournaments and below do not call doubles and then watch your community just accelerate in terms of skill because people are actually attempting it. Yeah. The arguments are still going to happen because people have opinions, but you are going to see the level of play is going to increase so much. Like, and that's where like the drama you're okay with the drama. Like that's what we see it at our camps all the time. It's like by day one and day five, day six, whatever, offenses are so much cleaner. And the main reason is just because people like get out of their own heads of not of trying not trying to handset because they're scared of getting yelled at by their local self self like self regulated ref is on the sideline having a beer in his hand talking crap. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Terrible. Yep. I, I think I think saying that it will t- remove judgment calls from the ref is only partially true because we're also going to like they still have to call the lift. Um, and also, you're not allowed to send the ball over the net with the double. Mm-hmm. So how many times now is it going to be like, OK, indoor, I'm setting the outside ball had some spin It ended up going over blocker touched it first. Wait a second, like what wait, are yeah. we Yeah, is that rule intentional? Like yeah, so like that that's where because it's like to remove judgment from referees is just removing their ability to referee. You cannot remove judgment from that position. Like that that yeah. rule should be like the beach rule is you know, if you're attempting to set your teammate and you doubled it and it goes over the net, play should continue. Just like on beach, like if you're not square but you're attempting to set your partner. If it goes over the net, that's fine. I think 
I don't know. I, I haven't seen the, the rule written out word for word. Yeah. But that's what it should be. It should you be. know, if, if okay, if you're going to like tap it to yourself and then spike your own like one-handed set onto the other side of the court, yes, they should definitely call that. If you're mangling balls and then sending them as, as attacks. But if you're attempting to set, I think, again, that's an opportunity to not blow the whistle and let play go to the advantage of waiting blockers anyway. Right. So I, I hope they quickly include that mm-hmm. caveat in the same way that Beach does. Yeah. If if anybody listening has any opinions or whatever, feel free to reach out to me <laughs> on social media. Like I, I just put, put it in my a questionnaire on my, on my story, like, give me your opinions. And I saw the wide range, like, only boomers want it to be like the old way, like all these people mad, like they're all the old school, whatever. And then I saw that the, a lot of people were like, this is ridiculous. I trained so hard. I trained my hands all day long and now we're just removing the skill entirely. So I, I think, I think it's just anytime there's a rule change, there's just a bunch of flurries of it, of people having opinions about it. I think mostly it won't affect it but i think maybe in five or ten years the game is going to look different and i think people that can take advantage of that and train it differently with their club teams um and and, you know looking at the recruits that will be able to run their offense because maybe they're more physical maybe they don't have as good of hands but it's like that's fine like i'll just take Mm -hmm. the big guy that makes the right decision and you know the brandon joiners of the world good luck i i do (laughs) i do wonder if uh if it'll affect the coaching of the skill of setting, you know, like, because I do think setting is a very technical, a very technical skill. Um, and I don't think it would change it. Like, I think if you're a coach, you're still teaching your setters how to set well. And then you're adding in different ideas on how to run their offense. But yeah. um, hopefully setter coaches are still, teaching setters how to set well I, I think that that as long as that happens which i don't see it going away then i don't have a problem with this rule at all yeah yeah, yeah i think you're right it's just going to open up different moves different abilities just sort of like you know a longer a longer ball handling in basketball it's like oh okay well if you can create all the side of the ball instead of just t- touching the, the top of it great now um now you have different moves that you can make right mm-hmm. so yep um okay hey guys we're gonna get going um my folks are here but everybody listening i do want you to know that uh, nolan this coming week so this podcast is going to be released in two days which is wednesday february 28th and nolan is going to be one of our master coaches on the better at beach complete player program so what that means is that he's going to go through some video analysis with all the players that submit their videos uh, in our private community. And from our elite members, he's going to, we're going to choose one person who he's going to do a 20-minute video analysis with. Um, and we're going to do a 40-minute video analysis of one of Nolan's matches. So where he can see and you can hear him talk out loud how he thinks, how he strategizes, where his mind is on his skills and on his tactics. So if you want to be a part of that, come on over to any of the links below. Uh, Look around this video and click on those links. And just for signing up for our email list and getting that information, we're going to give you our 36 best beach volleyball drills three of my favorite beach, vo- uh, beach volleyball workouts. So full 50 minute workouts. Uh, and you're going to get our fun 
YouTube playlist, which is the most commonly misunderstood beach volleyball rules. So it will help you solve a lot of arguments. And of course, a 5% discount. Uh, if you are just joining our list, you're going to get a 5% discount on any in-person class or any of our online programs, should you care to join. So make sure that you guys uh, come along for the ride. And if you want Nolan coaching you and you want to get his master class, then you're going to have to join the complete player program. And you can find that link under this video. Nolan, we're going to wrap it up by uh, saying what you think you're an expert at teaching. So things that you excel in in teaching. I know where we left you in the camp in Houston, and uh, I know that the players loved it, and I saw immediate advances in arm swings and serves. So that was cool to see. So I would say absolute arm swing mechanics master. But where do you proud pride yourself in teaching? Uh, yeah, I would say definitely the, the third contact and the first contact. So whether that is your serve or like serve receive, um, finding good ways to better that ball. Like if you're getting challenged on, on the other team's serve, uh, finding ways to get your platform there, get your body out of the way. I think I do a good job of training that. Um, I also just serving mentality, um, how to toss, where the wind is affecting you, uh, what type of players you're playing against, all that kind of stuff. And then Lastly, yeah, just the basics of the drawback of your arm, the contact point mindset, ways, things you should be thinking about when you're swinging and things you definitely should not be thinking about. Uh, I don't tell you about like not thinking about a pink elephant, right? I think I'm pretty good about giving you good direct, you know, A to B is a really, really good um, sort of thing there. Um, and just like how your hand should look how your body should follow the ball. Um, I got, I was lucky to get trained by a lot of Eastern coaches, coaches from China, Japan, Korea, and they coached a lot in metaphor. And so I think I can sort of tell a story through the arm swing and it's normally a fun story. A lot of times it's the same story I've told many times, but to each athlete I train, it is a little different um, because their arm works differently, their body works differently and stuff. So I think um, yeah, taking the individual person and adding 10 miles an hour to their swing and adding more accuracy to their contact and all that stuff, I think is probably where I excel the most as a coach. So if you want to add 10 miles per hour to your arm swing, Guaranteed. join the complete up. player program. No one will help get you there. And of course, you can come to any one of our in-person camps. Uh, Nolan's at a lot of them. And we have a few coming up. So March 8th to March 10th in Hermosa Beach. Uh, that's going to be Brandon and or me leading that. So March 8th to 10th is Women's A and Double A. March or April 6th to 12th, we are back in St. Pete Beach, Florida at the Postcard Inn. That is a six-day camp. So start your spring and summer off right April 6th to 12th. It is on sale now at St. Pete Beach. And we have a lot of bookings rolling in for our New York camp in Long Island, in Long Beach, New York. That is May 31st to June 2nd. That is a three-day mini camp for all levels, all ages. Uh, if it's like it was last year, it's going to be fire. It's going to be fun. And uh, we are accepting all levels for that one, May 31st to June 2nd. And we are always accepting assistant and volunteer coaches. So the way we're running our program is online. If you want to learn to become a better coach from us, 
online. We're going to give you all the tools, all the resources, how to teach all of those techniques, and one video meeting a week as a coaching mastermind. We want you to check that out. Uh, Links again below. But we will always train coaches for free at our camps and clinics. So if you want to be a part of that, if you want to see how we coach, and if you want to be a part of the evolution of the game and help your players, we are stoked to help you. So come on out. Just let us know that you're coming to one of our camps. Get in touch. Uh, You can email support at Better at Beach from any of the camps that you see. And essentially, we will show you how to feed, how to run drills, what we look for in great coaches, what we look for in perfect practices, and how we teach the game ourselves. So if you are interested in becoming a better coach, we have a number of programs for you, and we would love to see you in person at a camp. Uh, You can get a Better at Beach certified coach. Uh, You can become a Better at Beach Certified Coach by completing our online program and then coming for free to any one of our camps and coaching alongside us. So hope you join that and uh, hope you join the online program. If you are just a player, Bernolan will teach you how to hammer. And if you want to see him doing it live, check out the AVP events this year. And uh, if he heads back out to win Wapaka or Pottstown, uh, look for him on the grass. From me, from Brandon, from Nolan, thank you guys so much for listening, and we'll see you on the sand. Cool. Uh, Nolan, thank you so much. And (laughs) the only thing that you have left to do is just leave your browser window open. Uh, Don't close the tab. Leave it open because it pulls the recording from each of our computers. So it needs like... 20 to 30 minutes, depending on your internet, to just pull that recording so that we get the best possible version of the podcast. Okay. So cool. just when we head out, um, don't do that. And then next week, Tuesday at, at 11 a.m. Uh, is the complete player meeting. It's pretty easy. You just screen share. Oh, I'm going to. Is it 11 a.m.? Stop the recording. I think it's 